I've just about had enough of you. I'm more than machine. A man I am at your disposal with 187 other languages along with their various dialects and subtongues. Oh wonder. How many goodly creatures are there here? How beauteous mankind is. Oh, brave new world that has such people in it. Uh, no, that wasn't Sir Laurence Olivier. That was me, Matt Brown, reading out some of The Tempest by William Shakespeare. Hang on a minute. This isn't a blooming Shakespeare podcast. This is a robot podcast. How on earth does that fit in to the weft and weave of robotic history? Well, Stephen Murray, where are we? I'll tell you where I am. I actually thought Laurence Olivier was in the room. <laughs> it's marvellous. We're, we're halfway through the 50s and uh, television is beginning to tighten its grip on audiences. Uh, it's the end of the first golden age of TV and it's now getting into the network era. Which and that is is, going, that's American TV, is it? Golden that's American age of, TV, of American yeah, not, not British TV. No, that yeah, would come yeah, much yeah. later with the advent of Celebrity Love Island in the early <laughs> exactly. 2000s. Exactly. <laughs> God, you, you know your TV. <laughs> so, yeah, so telly is, is, in American life, is television sort of like the, the powerful medium? It's beginning to be that now that we've got the networks, the three big networks, ABC, CBS and NBC, mm. and colour TV's coming along as well. This will last until the 1980s until you get multiple channels and then everything goes crazy with, with hundreds of channels to watch. So, so cinema is, is desperate to hold on to the golden goose uh, and it sometimes uh, stoops to gimmicks. I mean, we've looked at 3D, which is one of these things that keeps coming back. Uh, William Castle was one of the, the greatest gimmick uh, producer. And he in cinemas, if in films like The Tingler, he'd put buzzers underneath the seats and flying skeletons, all of these things to, to get audiences to keep coming back. The big studios were would do big things on screen with epics, but they'd have epic screens as well with massive widescreen cinemascope and all of those kind of things. They created cinema as an event. We're still in the atomic age. And in 1956, actually, IBM announced that its 704 computer, large enough to occupy a room, uh, can play checkers and learn from that. So, It feels like and a lot of the films we've been watching have got this sort of exponential, rapid technological advancement that obviously certainly America's going through and maybe the world is going through sort of there it's all at the heart of them isn't it particularly yeah. the sort of like as a as a warning it's optimism but it's tempered by what annihilation <laughs> annihilation yeah <laughs> complete and utter annihilation mad yeah. mutually assured destruction okay so it's 1956 when forbidden planet uh, comes along uh, it was a film that was released by metro goldwyn mayer Yes. Um, now my um, my notes say that it had a budget of nearly two million dollars. Yes, it did. I mean, I suppose the first thing. I mean that that seems like that's a significant uplift, does it, in terms of budget on the films that we've been seeing? Yes, definitely the films we've been watching because they all contain robots. But the day of the Earth stood still had a budget of just under a million. War of the Worlds two million, and this Island Earth eight hundred thousand. So this is an equivalent budget to War of the Worlds in 1953, yeah. isn't yeah. it? I'd say that that, I mean, it, it feels like 
that's that feels that feels about right because it does remind me of War of the Worlds weirdly. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's the colours. The colour palette seems pretty similar. Yeah, yeah. But you've got to understand MGM had a look back then that was almost as recognisable as Disney. They did Wizard of Oz singing in the rain and Gone with the Wind. And they, yeah, you're right. They do all. They all sort of do look quite similar, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Forbidden Planet came out six years after the Three Laws of Robotics were formed. Excellent. Yeah. And Robbie is a science fiction short story by Isaac Asimov. Oh, it was right, the okay. first one. So the first robot he wrote about was called Robbie. Brilliant. And and also Robbie does conform to the laws of Asimov. It does. Yeah. Yes. You called Robbie it. I've been throughout my entire note taking I referred to him as he. Ah. But I th- I think probably it is better, isn't it? Well, Robbie does say in the film that giving him a sexual orientation is pointless. Yes, he does, doesn't he? Because yep. the, the, one of the horny, the horny crew members wants <laughs> to know dr- if it's a woman. The drunken cook. <laughs> Doc, is it, a, is it a male or a female? In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning. <laughs> okay, it's the, so it's the one thing that prevents me from saying it's a pivotal moment in science fiction films. Because I almost changed my mind. Oh, really? Yeah, I think it's Be- influential, but it's not pivotal. Okay, all right. It certainly feels like it's a huge film in in our in our universe in the robot universe, isn't it? And it's a huge film, I suppose, in the fifties as well. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a big departure. Yeah, on a uh, lot of levels. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it feels like the films that we have been watching up until now. I mean, so we had four films in the nine in nineteen fifty four that we looked at: Tobor the Great, Gog, Target Earth, and Devil Girl from Mars. No films contained robots in 1955, <laughs> so it's always oh. like they'd we'd worn out, worn out the genre in 1954. We've um, had enough. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then in 19, so this is the next film that comes along that's got a sort of like a, a robot in. It feels like you can see the evolution of robot films, or maybe science fiction films, throughout the 50s, almost leading up to this point. I think it feels like it's drawing on on all of these films that have come before it in the 50s. It's going to be interesting when we, we rate Robbie. Isn't it? It is. <laughs> it is. Okay, so I'm going to do a very, very quick um, synopsis in case anybody hasn't seen it. I had not seen it until I, I've only li- literally just stopped finished watching it, and it, which is sacrilegious, I know, because it is such a sort of um, seminal film. But there we are. We can't all see all the films all the time, can we? So, the beginning of the film, there's a voiceover which sort of brings us up to speed with where technology is in the time period that we're talking about. And I think we're probably in the 22nd century? Or 23rd century. 23rd. 23rd century. Humans can now travel faster than the speed of light in their spaceships. And a spaceship um, piloted and helmed by Leslie Nielsen has uh, gone to check out what happened on a planet called Altair 4 because an expedition was sent there 20 years previously. They find the the final remaining crew member of that expedition who's called Dr Morbius, who has a daughter uh, with him on the planet. Um, Dr Morbius warns them that they shouldn't land. They do land and then they wish they hadn't landed. 
They were warned, Matthew. They were warned. Now, the reason that that I read The Tempest out at the beginning is because there is a sort of a link, a thematic link between The Tempest, the Shakespeare play, and Forbidden Planet. Lots of people say it's based on The Tempest. I don't. Do you think it is? It's based on the characters. Yes, that's right. So, whereas yeah. The Tempest is a revenge story. Yeah. Because in, in The Tempest, Prospero, he yeah. lures all of his enemies to the island to get revenge on them. That's right. Really not understanding that, you know, they're all men and his daughter hasn't seen any men, so that side of it takes on. And he also wants to get revenge on, on the Queen as well. The equation for Tempest and, and uh, for the planet is that, that Dr. Morbius is Prospero, isn't he? Yes. And Altera, his daughter, is Prospero's daughter, Miranda. Yeah. Robbie the robot is Ariel, I suppose. Yes, Robbie yeah. the robot is Ariel, and the id is Caliban. Yes, right. And Leslie Nielsen, who's he's, he's JJ Adams, Captain JJ Adams, um, is Ferdinand, who falls in love with Miranda. Yeah. And I suppose the other thing as well is that whereas there's magic on the island in the Tempest, replace that with technology. On yeah, the planet. which again is like magic. What's that phrase that you That's said before? That's the Arthur C. Clarke phrase, yeah. isn't it? Any technology that is sufficiently advanced will seem like magic. Yeah. Exactly. So there there are links, but it is not a, a reversioning of The Tempest, is it? It sort of just no. uses thematic links and character links. It's kind of modernizes certain bits like in prospero's world is shaped by the four classical elements of aristotle air fire earth and water whereas morbius world is governed by freud's ego super ego and the id yes it is more of that later (laughs) (laughs) okay so the first the first things that i noticed and thought of when watching this film in the title sequence is the music Tonalities is is how it's referred to because they weren't allowed to be uh, in the in the credits as musicians. Right. So who who did the music? Who, who uh, did the tonalities? Uh, Robert and Bebe Barron. They were asked to do some electronic sound sounds for the film and soundscapes. But what they did was they did they did a soundtrack for the whole film. They just did it, uh, and then they reckoned that they would cherry pick some of the the electronic sounds. Now, you've got to understand they don't have keyboards. It's not like uh, synthesizers and Moog synthesizers uh, like we've got now. It was very much more like the uh, BBC electronic workshop. They'd build their own instruments, and it was all feedbacks and modulators and Mm. things like that. Uh, Getting the original sounds was fairly easy, but then manipulating those sounds took months and months to create the soundscape. But because they weren't musicians and they weren't part of the union, the union put their foot down and says, you can't have them on the credits as musicians. Amazing. So they called it tonalities. It's really um, unsettling, and and it's and it and they weave them throughout the whole film. It's it's used like yeah. a soundtrack, isn't it? There's a couple of times when I'm, I I felt it's just too much. Do you think so? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you mean in I, terms of because it becomes boring or because no, it irritating, becomes irritating. Yeah. I mean, I'd say that I felt, and again, this is the first time I've watched it. I thought that it was incredibly unsettling and 
I was th- really I was thinking to myself, what must it have been like to have been in a cinema mm. in 1956 and seeing this film? Because just the sound of it is unlike anything we've heard, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it truly is um, weird. Yeah, it is weird. I mean, and I like. I mean, in, in a good way. I thought. I yeah, I thought it. when when they're dealing with kind of atmosphere and when they're dealing with the the sound of the the creature. Yeah, is really amazing and kind of chilling. Yeah, but then when they do things like when they slow the ship down from light speed to normal speed, and the crew has to go into some form of stasis, <laughs> which will come up again because it was the inspiration for Roddenberry and Star Trek. Yeah, um, that sound. I've played it to my students, and they all—it's like running fingers down a chalkboard. Yeah. <laughs> It's not a nice experience, but it is an experience. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. You're right. It's an experience. Also, uh, Robbie the Robot is in the credits. He is. He's like a character. Why have they Very done much, that? They spent between 100000 and $125,000 on him alone. Yeah. He was so well uh, crafted by yeah. Robert Kinoshita. So he was the guy who took all the designs, added more himself, mm. and built a model. The, the designer, Robbie, was going on for quite a long time, and he just decided to put something together. And one of the executives went past and saw a model, grabbed the model, took it to uh, the producers, and they said, right, make it. And oddly enough, Robert Kinoshita used to work in a... He used to design washing machines. Oh, wow. He also went on to design B9 from Lost in Space. And okay. a lot of people think he designed Tobar, but he didn't. He didn't. We've already we've already put that scotch we've, that rumour, haven't we've we? Done that one. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it says cast includes yeah. Walter Pigeon, Leslie Nielsen, and Robbie the Robot. So he's yeah. like he's like a member of the cast. He is um, a member of the cast, and I don't think he was meant to be such a beloved member of the cast. They didn't realise it would happen. Right. Okay. But he's in it all the way through. Yeah, he is. He's yeah, and and also I've just seen if, when you Google the poster, he's like right on the uh, poster. Yeah, the poster is very misleading because Robbie looks uh, looks quite aggressive and evil, and he's holding a woman in his in his arms, which is yeah. obviously going to be Altera because she's the only woman in the film. And this never happens in the film, does it? He never holds uh, a woman in the film. He holds a man like that in the film, doesn't he? He, he yeah, does he cradle does. a man in that in that way, but not never a woman. But this is not the first time that we have seen a poster with the robot holding a woman. This is like a, a running theme, isn't it? Yeah, most of them, and they're always kind of uh, drawn from below to make the uh, the robot look even more aggressive. Yeah. And Joe Dante can be quoted as saying that the reason why they did these posters like this with all these robots holding women comes directly from... Uh, Gorilla movies and monster movies. Okay. Because they're always holding the woman. They're always cradling a fainted lady. But this never happens in... Only um, in one film. What's the one film? The Day the Earth Stood Still. Oh, that's right. God does pick her up and take her into the ship. Yes. To show off his collection of pants. (laughs) (laughs) Has he got a drawer? <laughs> a drawer of pants. Of course he has. Um, great, okay. So the other thing that is that's, that sort of happens sort of almost immediately, you've got these lovely titles with this strange music, and then once they finish, then we see the spacecraft that is hurtling through space 
and we're t- we, we're given this sort of like backstory of the of the history so we know that that humans can now travel faster than light and are exploring the sort of farthest reaches of the galaxy and all that sort of stuff but what's interesting for me anyway was the flying saucer it's a flying saucer Aliens come to Earth in these flying saucers and they come here. And this is the first time we're the aliens and mm. we've gone to another planet and we're and in a flying saucer. Is that why they, they're the flying saucers used then, to sort of depict us as the aliens? It could be that, but it's just, it's, it's, in, the, it's in the consciousness now, flying saucers, saucers and in popular culture. Um, and then from there we go inside the spacecraft, inside the flying saucer, and oh my goodness, it's beautiful inside. Did you like it? I loved it. It's just sensational. Like this beautiful sort of glass and steel instruments everywhere and huge banks of sort of whirring machines and and yet sort of lovely stylish leather sofas for everyone yeah. to lounge around on and things like it's that. It's incredibly stylish. It is. It's amazing. William Gibson, the author of Neuromancer and Johnny Mnemonic, uh, called the aesthetic Raygun Gothic. Brilliant. That is exactly it. One thing I was I was wondering about is this the first time that you've got a film that essentially uses the language and the media of ocean-going ships that is transplanted into space. You know, like there's bosuns and there's captains and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think it is. I think you've hit on something there, which transfers over again to Star Trek. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? And and yeah. I think that's one of the the reasons why this it feels very Star Trek. It was a it's massive influence on him. I mean, Huge God on. Almighty! You've got the introduction at the beginning of the film, the monologue, yeah. which boldly go where no man has gone before. Yeah, you've got the interior, and even in Star Trek: Next Generation, they even have those individual lifts that only one person can stand on and go up to another level. Amazing! They've even mimicked that in in Next Generation. And then the other thing that happens quite quickly is you've got the transporter beam. It isn't a transporter beam. No. It's to prevent them from being smush as they slow down from light speed, normal speed. This was done before in this island Earth in 1955, the year before. This time a tube, they they hold these handles that freezes them and then this tube comes down and then they they, uh, transform into something that can stand light speed. Right. But it looks very, very similar. The other thing that I thought about watching this this sort of early bit in the spaceship with uh, Leslie Nielsen, who's Captain J.J. I keep wanting to call him J.J. Abrams. Everybody it, wants to on this. J.J. Adams. Is that it's so difficult to watch Leslie Nielsen because you just expect him to tell a joke, which I suppose shows how just synonymous he became later in his career for that sort of canon of, of American wordplay films like Airplane and um, the Police Squad TV show and all of the, all of those films. Jane, what can you tell me about this man you saw last night? Uh, he's Caucasian with a moustache about six foot three. An awfully big moustache. The next thing I've got on my list is, is just to sort of revel in how great the special effects are in this film. Yeah, they're very good. They're nothing, so good. Nothing new, but loads of money. They've run and artists, they got the best artists they could possibly get to work on this. Well, it feels like there are lots of things happening that we have spoken about before. The spaceship flying through space looks lovely, it does, yeah, doesn't yeah. it? And it's sort of and almost it's, seamless. It's even got that bit where it goes past uh, the sun, which has been eclipsed by yes. one of the planets, it's been altered. And that, that is done again in Alien at the beginning of Alien. Amazing, it's an almost shot for shot 
reshoot. Yeah. The production designer, a production illustrator and storyboarder was a guy called Mentor Hubner. Perfect. And he went on to work on The Thing, Blade Runner and Total Recall and Dune. Brilliant. Um, God is evoked quite early on as well in this film. Um, I think it's the Doctor character who, when they're approaching Altair 4, says, the Lord sure makes some beautiful worlds. I think that's the one and only quote where God and the Bible comes into it because the rest of everything is mythology. Yeah, except the, the last line of the film. So God's an opener and a closer, is he? Yeah, God's an opener and a closer. So at the end of the film, Leslie Nielsen says, this will remind us that we are not God. But I was thinking when when that guy says, when the doctor says the Lord sure makes some beautiful worlds, I was sort of reminded of Buzz Aldrin, who would be going up onto the moon at like a decade from, from this point. I've read that he held a communion on the moon. There's some religious ceremony that I've, I've read that he facilitated on the moon and he obviously was a, a you know a very devout christian oh. person in a world where god ain't got no place in the space race do you know what i mean it feels like i always think that technology tends to push out the supernatural and the divine it, it, it's its job to yeah. do that which goes back to the tempest because that was written at a time when technology and science were beginning to come in and Prosper, Prosper at the end of The Tempest gets rid of his wand, his books, and uh, gets uh, disposed of his magic. Do you okay. want to go through some of the uh, Greek references? Go for it. You could say that all of the names in this is a giveaway to what's going to happen, because Morbius is from the Latin morbus, which is a disease of the body and mind. Right. Where have I given away? The yeah. Bellerophon, which is the ship that brought Morbius there, uh, is a, also a Corinthian hero uh, of Greek mythology who famously battled and killed a fantastical chimera monster, a fearsome, fire-breathing mix of lion, goat, and snake. Nice. The Gorgon is mentioned, and then there's a special um, command which has the the word Archimedes in it. So there's lots of Greek references. There is. An Altair is actually a star of the first magnitude. An Altera means bird, high-flying. So the the ship lands on Altair 4 and and they, they, they leave the ship because the atmosphere is rich in oxygen, so they don't need to any special breathing apparatus. And then we see Robbie the robot for the first time. We see Robbie, Robbie arriving in the form of huge dust clouds which have been yeah. whipped up by his uh, vehicle that is travelling very quickly. His weird jeep. He's got, he's got quite a bubbly look. He does. Bobby. He looks a little bit like a bottle of Matey Bubble Bath, I thought. <laughs> <laughs> Except he's got, Robbie's got this sort of beautiful domed head and inside are his, sort of the inner workings of his brain, which is a bit... Feels a bit steampunky, I suppose, because it's mm. all sort of brass and and things moving and whirring uh, inside his 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 dome. If I was to be critical of Robbie, I'd say he's not su- not well suited for the terrain, is he? He's not well suited for anything. <laughs> he's he's um because essentially he's he's a, an android in form. He's got arms and he's got legs and he's got a head, so he looks like a person. Yeah. But I feel that he's it's a very rocky landscape 
and I feel I really fear fear that he's going to be toppling over. I feel that that maybe a be- it would have been better to be more gog like and have have um, treads like yeah, a tank. Yeah, that would be perfect. So that even w- the robots from um, Loss of Sensation they had treads. Yeah. So I think that that would be my my criticism my criticism of him. He doesn't move very easily, and he it feels like he, he honestly you could just just push him over and he'd just fall flat on his back. He does look as if he's more designed to shuffle around an old people's home. He does, doesn't he? I feel like he lets the aesthetic of the film down a little bit. Because he didn't at the time. People actually believed he was a robot. Did they? Yeah, they did. Because he was uncredited and he was there in the titles as as a character. So yeah. they really did think, and they thought it was a wonder. Well, that's fair. And, and also, again, we're talking about the evolution of these films. From, from the point of view of the robots that we've seen up until this point, he represents a humongous technological breakthrough yeah. because he is he is able to converse he's got this huge sort of intellect he's uh, autonomous as well he absolutely and and so he 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 does i mean the last film that we looked at tobor the great i mean he just whilst he whilst he is as lumbering as tobor possibly he is significantly more advanced i think tobor was a lot more agile yeah, it probably was actually. <laughs> yeah, again, disappointing that there's no tap shoes on on Robbie. No, I know little jingle taps. <laughs> so Robbie, even though he was put forward as a, a cast member and a quite a considerable amount of people thought he was an actual robot, he was actually played and operated by Frankie Darrow. Okay. Now, considering that the suit cost between a hundred thousand and a hundred and twenty-five thousand. Yeah. That is a lot of money. It was fantastically engineered. Yeah. Uh, Very much so that he he has been quoted as being the most hardworking robot in Hollywood because he made continuous appearances right up until the 70s. Oh, and even beyond in the 80s because he's in Gremlins. Is he? Yes. (laughs) When When the main guy's father rings him from the convention... There is Robbie the Robot's there and the time machine from George Powell's time machine. Amazing. Please tell Go me on. he had an appearance in an episode of a Columbo. He had an appearance in an <laughs> episode of Columbo. They loved a robot in Columbo, didn't they? <laughs> they loved everything. It kept it kept people working. Yeah. There was three things that kept people working in TV. There was Batman, all the old stars are all the villains in Batman. There was Columbo and there was Murder She Caused. <laughs> so Robert, Frankie Darrow he was inside they had to black his face out so you couldn't see it through the grill mm. uh, and then on one lunch he had about three too many um, martinis mm. got in the suit and almost toppled over wow. and he got sacked showing how, how precarious Robbie the Robot is. Yes, he's, there is a rule for martinis. I love a martini, two at the most, three I'm under the table, four I'm under the host. Right, and so he was under the host at this point. He was almost under the host. <laughs> but he, but, so he was fired? Yeah. But then did they think, oh, we haven't got anyone to be inside the suit? <laughs> I don't know, the trail finishes there, because uh, I don't know whether they rehired him again, I sobered him up, Yeah. I don't know, but... Robbie carried on. And whether or not, I don't think he was uh, played Robbie after that in all the different, he was in, Robbie was in Wonder Woman as well. There's a massive list of Twilight Zone. He's in The Addams Family. Amazing. 
and he appears next to B9 in, uh, I think, two episodes of Lost in Space. That is so cool. Uh, so in November 2017, Robbie the Robot's costume and his transporter, his little Jeep, was auctioned off and then and sold for $5.375 million, surpassing the $4 million paid for the Maltese Falcon statue. Yowzers. I know. That is a lot of moolah. Should we talk about what he's made of? Yes. He was, uh, he was made in the leather shop of MGM mm. out of a material called Royalite. Okay. Which is a plastic material that's malleable at certain temperatures and was used to make um, suitcases. So he's made up of suitcase plastic and designed by a man who made washing machines. Do we know what he's made of in the world of Forbidden Planet? He's made of the same material as the doors. So he's like indestructible, he's impenetrable. Okay. Because he is a, he is a product of, of the aliens. He's yeah. not. He's not a product of... Morbius. So M- Morbius has constructed this extraordinary life for himself. He's on his own with his daughter. He's got this beautiful futuristic house. He's got and it's got like incredible technology in this in this house. When he shows it to Leslie Nielsen and the others, they cannot believe what they're seeing. It's just so incredible. And he's created Robbie, who they're really impressed with. And yet he's just a philologist, a philologist being someone who's interested in where words come from. Yeah. So he shouldn't really be able to create something like Robbie. And we find out later that he has sort of basically been using alien technology that was left over from a, a race of aliens called the Krell, who occupied the planet for hundreds of thousands of years, but hundreds of thousands of years ago. Yeah. So they're they're a long dead, highly sophisticated alien race, and he's using their technology, and then that becomes a problem because Leslie Nielsen wants to take the technology back to to Earth. Yeah. There's um, one gigantic machine. It's just called the Krell machine. Yeah, that is self. It it looks after itself, and it's looked after itself for thousands of years. Yeah, and it will never turn off. No, which always should be <laughs> your your little red flag to something being very bad. I think in a film like this, if you can't turn something off, then that is definitely bad news. And turn it back on again. Exactly. You need to be able to do that for goodness Ultimate sake. Ultimate computer advice. Absolutely. And this this technology um, has opened Morbius's brain real wide. Um, even though he's able to access only a fraction of, of the potential of this technology, we know that he has increased his own brain capacity and power. He's, he's doubled it since he's been using it uh, for, you know in the last 20 years we also find out that the reason why morbius is alone on the planet except for his daughter and that is because everyone else was killed by this mysterious force torn apart by this mysterious force that exists or existed on the planet which kind of came and killed everybody apart from morbius and his daughter and then went away, and and he he's not he's not seen hide nor hair of it since. Put a pin in that because that'll become important later in the <laughs> legend of film. We've got to talk about the shape of the Krell, which we never see, but we are kind of encouraged to imagine through the shape of the doors and the technology and the chairs. And the one thing I found absolutely fascinating was the stairs. Uh, in two halves with a with a ramp in between as if they've got a huge tail oh. it's like really amazing the way they do it and he mentions multiple limbs because when he and they've got massive heads 
big heads. Big heads. They've got these big massive heads. Oh yes, he they. Puts the, yeah. He puts the probes on his head on the uh, the educator, and he says, "This, of course, was made for a large, uh, much larger cranium." Yeah. And so you, you're you're encouraged to imagine the Krell, which I think is far more interesting than giving us some really crappy special effect or yeah. practical I effect. Totally agree with you. And and also to that point, when um, this mysterious force sort of turns up again, I thought they did it really really well. Yeah. How how you don't see it initially, but you see its footprints, and you see its effect on on things rather than. It itself, and it felt very Jawsy. I thought they did struggle to come up with what the creature was going to look like. Okay, one school of thought was that they wanted it to be a representation of the Krell, and one iteration of the monster was literally just going to be Morbius's head, Walter Pitchin's head on two legs, and they thought it would be just too terrifying. And so the person who came up with the idea was the. Uh, the Walt Disney animator that MGM loaned, whose name was Joshua Medor, and he came up with the monster, and he based it on the Bellerophon creature, which was the chimera monster of the mix of a lion, goat, and snake. And he also put in a little goatee beard. Ah, uh, okay. Which uh, Walter Pigeon has as Morbius, and a couple of the roars were based on the MGM lion. Brilliant. Which appears at the beginning of the film. Yeah. And we also really should have known that Morbius was going to be the villain because he had his Emperor Ming beard. He did. He did have a, quite an evil beard. He did, yeah. And quite an evil outfit as well. Oh, yeah. Which is sort Very of... totalitarian. Yeah, it is. It's brown, which is never a good, <laughs> good colour. And the reason that they would have wanted to make it look like Morbius is because we find out that... The monster is um, has been created by Morpheus's unconscious mind. He's yep. he's and, and th this was the problem with the Krell as well. That this is what destroyed them. That the, the because their their minds were so massive, their bonkers brains were so enormous that they unleashed these terrifying creatures created by their unconscious, which destroyed them. The pleasure principle. Well, the id represents uh, all of our unbound pleasures, including uh, hate and to kill. Like so Morbius's world is, is, as I've said before, it's governed by Freud's ego, superego, and the id. And Morbius is the ego. Robbie is the superego, which is his consciousness, the thing he's got most power over. So your superego is the is the rational, we which tells us not to do these things. Okay. Uh, and so Robbie is his creation that he's got control over, which is like having control over your emotions. Yeah. But the machine boosts his brain power, but also increases his inability to control his id. With quite devastating consequence. <laughs> well, yeah. And the way they describe <laughs> what happens to the bodies is, is pretty gruesome. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, he said he was plastered all over the navigation room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you don't. It doesn't. Doesn't. You don't see anything, do you? <laughs> it's for kids. <laughs> now, here's it. Is it for kids? Oh no, I know. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Because I don't think it is. I mean, a kid would not be able to wrestle with Freudian it and superego. I don't think it was recut for kids' matinees and all the all the sort of the sexual implications and all of the, that. That kind was taken out. And that's another thing we have to talk about. Yes, I think we do. The fact that the entire crew were acting like a Tex Avery wolf. 
<laughs> well, they've been in space a long time, haven't they? I felt this was it. It was slightly unsettling. This this whole sort of storyline. You've got Altera, who's the daughter of Morbius. Basically, all of the crew members of the ship sort of fall for her. Now she, because she's not had any contact with other humans, she's kind of very naive. But also, I I kind of thought that she basically like cast this weird spell over everybody, didn't mm. she? And I thought I thought that it was going to go in that direction for a bit, but it's just the, it's just that they're they're all horn dogs on the ship, and they haven't haven't seen a lady for for some time, and so that when they do, they get the, the, all of their their emotions are heightened, I suppose, aren't they? Ooh, so the, it's like lust, id. anger. It is, it is all of those, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Because yeah. Leslie Nielsen, essentially, they, they fall in love with each other, Leslie Nielsen and Altera. But, but Leslie Nielsen, yeah, at the beginning, like you said, it, he basically like tells her that it's her fault that all these men are uh, yeah. acting so horribly towards her because of the way she dresses. It's so strange, that that whole bit. And and again, how quickly she she so after being told off essentially, and shamed by Leslie Nielsen, she she's furious and goes off back home, but then falls in love with Leslie Nielsen the very next day. She's a very strong character in in other aspects. Yeah, she's she independent, is. and you yeah. know yeah. she tells them what for, and you know, and, and all of that. Yeah, she does. Um, what did you think of the whole idea of the monster being? generated via the unconscious mind i i really liked it and uh, it does show up in a lot of other science fiction it shows up a lot in um star trek uh yeah i thought it was a great idea yeah i i just thought i felt a bit disappointed oh why i don't know it just feels so obviously not like it's not going to happen is it the child in you that feels disappointed? Would you want to lie on a couch while we have this discussion? <laughs> Maybe. Your pleasure principle from your id. <laughs> yeah, I just I disappointed. Felt, I felt that I would have much, much rather the monster had been physically generated by the Krell machine. Well, or just a part of the a part of the flora and fauna of the planet, which came from Earth. The planet came from Earth. No, all the flora and fauna. That yes, it did. Yeah, because the Krell visited Earth, which is why we have ti- they had tigers and yeah. But do you know what I mean? Like like a like sort of tremors, that sort of vibe. Oh, it felt like it's just such an obviously ungrounded in reality sort of monster. I I liked it. Yeah, fair enough. I think it's because you do you do get you get a payoff. You see it. You do, and it is so utterly different from anything. Yeah, it, even after. I think people were struggling with, ooh, well, that's that's given a different benchmark on monsters. Yeah, it was beautifully done. And there's a lot of really nice animation in this film. A lot of animation. Yeah. I was quite surprised just how much. Yeah. but that's... I thought the tech was brilliant. I thought the... Yeah. Because when they go to visit Morbius and they, they use one of their, like, um, magnet machines, magnet sort of lifting machines, I thought that was great. Yeah. Just, great. Everything was so wonderfully thought out to yeah. look so different to what we have on Earth. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I can really imagine that going to see that in the cinema would have been amazing in 1956. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely awesome. So, what do we think of Robbie the Robot? Uh, the, we can do this on two levels. We can do it on practicality and yeah. aesthetics. Okay. 
aesthetics, absolute 10 out of 10, fits the film, looks brilliant. Practicality, he's, he's, I'm afraid he's down there like three or four. Yeah. So like a, what would be an average? In one of our Six. recent in one of our recent episodes, we said that in order for a robot to not be shit, it had to get a seven out of ten. Oh, I've so. just given it a six. <laughs> so by our own measure, <laughs> you're saying it hasn't quite. Robbie the robot has not quite achieved that that bar. But I want him to. Robbie does have he character. He does have character. I want to give him a seven. All right. So we'll see. Uh, that's. I'm very happy to do that. Mainly because I don't you. want any angry letters from nerds. <laughs> <laughs> or me. Or you from Forbidden Planet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we'll say that he is he's not shit then. No, he's not shit. No. I think that's very fair, because I don't yeah. think he is shit. No. He's, he's still there, he's still with us. He is, yeah. So Forbidden Planet, one of the iconic robot films of the twentieth century. Done and done. Uh and the next film on the list is Kronos. Ravager of planets, destroyer of the universe. Have you seen that film? Yeah, twice. I <laughs> <laughs> love it. Um, I've, I've wasted my life. You've wasted your life. That's good. That's good. Okay, so we'll do, we're going to do Kronos on the next episode. Um, keep listening and keep sharing all the stuff about uh, this podcast because we would love more people to hear it. Um, so and check out some of the the back episodes because you might just find something you like Uh, we will see you next time on another thrilling installment of 50 years of shit robots goodbye goodbye it's true it will remind us that we are after all not God 